I tell you, we are so blessed to have uh, the elder team that God has put together for such a time as this. And is, uh, I just want to echo what Bill was saying of just how God has just really united our hearts as one. I talk to pastors that have to deal with someone's division at certain leadership levels, and it just we just praise God for who he's assembled and just the uh, alignment. I took my dad yesterday to see Boys in the Boat. Anyone see Boys in the Boat? And I'll tell you, you know, I never have a prayer of staying awake through an entire matinee, but my dad at 86, man, he's plugging away and he loved it. But what I loved about that movie is that you have everyone right in stroke, you know, the guy who's calling the strokes at the front of the boat, everyone is in unison. And, and they function as one. And, and that is always the prayer for our church leadership. There's never shortage of prayer requests for that in today's day. Would you agree? Man, I tell you, leading in today's world especially has its uh, opportunities. We'll put it that way. And it's all good. Hey, you know, church business, before uh, we go on, I, I want to uh, highlight something. We don't normally do this, but when there's a milestone reach like this woman who's a part of our congregation has reached, it's time to celebrate. Irene Stearns on Tuesday turns 102. Wow. Man, isn't that great? And what's so cool about this 102-year-old is that she's still doing so well. And uh, so um, if you want to just, uh, you know, send a birthday card, all that kind of stuff, bring it to the office here um, by Tuesday. We'll get it uh, sent off to her. Um, but again, I, I heard she's already been flooded with uh, love offerings from this church family. Um, also, um, I, I do know that we have a very missions-minded church. We're, we're excited that at the end of the service today, we get to send off a family uh, to the mission field. So that's pretty exciting. And uh, it's really cool to be able to see that. Um, but you know, this heart, the heart of this church loves mission. And uh, with that, I know that our communication team has an awesome responsibility to figure out what gets articulated and, and shared. And again, there's so many different events, but I did want to uh, inform you of an Awakened Missions Conference uh, this Friday night and Saturday at uh, K First Church. And for those who have an interest in what God is doing um, around the world, um, man, be a part of that. You can check that out. Um, but again, just wanted to at least alert you to those things. Now, question for you. This is a history test just to uh, see how much you paid attention um, in your history classes. How many of you have ever heard of Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers? Oh, good job. Good job. What did they do? Yeah, they invented the airplane. They, they, they got all of that uh, worked out. You know, their, their incredible flight there in December 17th, 1903. So that's awesome. But did you know, how about this one? Raise your hands if you've heard of uh, Samuel Langley. Samuel Langley. Okay, a few of you historians. Good. 
Well, here's about Samuel Langley. Samuel Langley was hired by the War Department to come up with something that would fly because the War Department said, we will have great advantage on the battlefield should we get something that would be superior that could be in the sky. And, uh, and so they gave him, he was a Harvard professor, they gave him incredible amount of incentive monetarily for such an endeavor. What I love, though, is that, yeah, not many of you raised your hands because he didn't make the history books. The Wright brothers made the history books, and guess what? The Wright brothers were poor. They had a bicycle shop. In fact, they just were driven by this notion that the world would be such a better place if there was the ability to fly. You know, I think of Anita on the other side of the world and traveling all over on the same day. And just go, wow, what a gift that was in the innovation of that. See, they were driven not by money, not by fame. They were driven that everybody's life could be better. And being driven by that why is why <laughs> they were able to accomplish something absolutely amazing. And I think when it comes to we, the church, and, and uh, people of faith, especially in the day and age which we live, have you noticed that uh, the times we live in here in the 21st century, here in the United States of America, they're a little bit different than the 20th century. Would you agree? I mean, I know as a pastor, there used to be a day, some of you youngins would not even uh, recognize this, there was a day where there was no events um, athletically or in a school, public school setting on a Wednesday night. Why? Because that was reserved for church. Remember those days? Oh, those were great days. You could plan. People didn't have uh, all these conflicts. Today is a different day. And I think it's so important for we as a people because we make decisions every day and those decisions are predicated upon our different belief systems, our different world views, and uh, how the choices that we make really communicate a lot to those around us. And my question for us as we open today is, is there anything in how you live your life where people are looking at your life and you go, well, that's, that's kind of different how they schedule their time. That's a little bit different how they spend their money. That's a little bit different that they would move away from everything that is familiar and go to some place that is totally unfamiliar and speak a different language. Who does that? And as I hear those stories, I as the pastor here, one of the pastors here at Grace Spring, I, I want us to read something that I think is very apropos to our day and the big why as to why we're going through the book of Genesis. Um, in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, Peter, who is a disciple of Jesus, he pens these words to you and to me. And I think it would be a very good exercise if you're watching at home, watching wherever or here, that we read this text aloud. Because sometimes when we verbalize something, it can maybe hit our hearts a little bit harder. Amen. 
or if we hear it said around us, maybe we'll hear it and let it go deep into our hearts. So, can you read this with me? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Isn't that good? He's saying we should be living the, the, the God-given opportunity for us to live in relationship with Almighty God. That Genesis reminds us reminds us that we, you and I, no matter our educational background, no matter our socioeconomic background differences, we all can share something in common, that we have a creator God who loves us and designed us to have relationship with him. And out of that relationship with him, there is to be a distinction in how we live from the rest of the world. Would you agree with that? You know, there is a word that's called apologetics. You heard that word before? Apologetics means to give a defense. And in the day and age we live in today, 21st century being so different than even 20th century, it is imperative that the church of Jesus Christ be driven by an apologetic, a defense of the faith, because we know that we know in the depth of a heart what we believe. Now, you and I in the scriptures aren't given everything that is needed to answer every why. Well, why would God do that? Why would God do that? There's a, a whole lot of mystery in some of those things, which is why faith is so important <laughs> and where the object of our faith is to be directed. And so here with this, our journey so far in Genesis 1 has established the following. God created something from nothing through the power of his word. God created. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, there's a lot of different views and timings and this and that. However, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, even very incredibly intellectual scientists have said that, you know, make no mistake, when you do the research, it really is irrational to believe that there is no intelligent designer. I mean, because everything has incredible design. And we talked about how God, in the power of his spoken word, spoke creation into existence. And after six days, it says that God had formed the natural and the spiritual realms with a sense of order and purpose. See, it is God who formed that word formed in the Hebrew is almost this picture of um, the, the one who is forming the clay, the potter, and he's got the clay, and he's getting his hands really dirty. Last week, when God created man, it was the first time that he didn't speak just into existence. He formed. He got his hands dirty, figuratively speaking, since, you know, God is spirit, and gets his hands dirty and is face to face, close enough to breathe the breath of life into a lump of formed clay, formed dirt. 
God does the amazing thing. So see, God formed. And then third, mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. When you look at those texts, you'll see that, wow, that mankind, what is man? That God would bestow all of this unto creation. And so now, Genesis chapter 2, the focus here really for the next two weeks, um, what I'm going to be talking about for the next two weeks is in this category of theodicy. A theodicy. Do you know what a theodicy is? A theodicy is this. It is trying to explain how evil can exist in a world with a sovereign, good, and loving God. How do those two come together? So for the next two weeks, we are going to be able to answer that. A lot of today is going to set the stage for next week. But this takes place in the Garden of Eden. The, the Garden of Eden has a temple imagery to it. Because in the temple, the temple is the place where people could meet with God. And Eden was the place that creation met with God. And so here you have a, a piece of real estate. We had, uh, I, I would contend that not all of the earth was Eden. It says God plants a garden in Eden. So there's a geography. There's an a, a Eden location. And, and uh, so we're going to hone in on this place of worship, because Eden is to be a place of worship, and we're going to be given some instruction, and we're going to be seeing that there's some temple responsibility. As we looked here, it says in verse 8, the Lord God planted the garden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here we have this place, this, this place of worship, and God puts here a variety of trees to work the garden. Now, again, if you go down to uh, later here in our text, it says this, the Lord God took the man in verse 15, put him in the garden to do what? To work it and to keep it. First of all, to work it. Have you ever noticed here in the last few years that more and more places are having a harder time finding people who are willing to work? I mean, do you notice that? I was having conversations this morning of just said, man, we have such incredible shortages, and it's so difficult. But here, uh, I, I, I want us to be reminded of this. Then Genesis chapter 1, we see a phrase, or we see this idea that God worked, God worked, God worked, God worked. He rested on the seventh day, but he worked in creation. The question people have, why do we work? Why is there great fulfillment in work? Why is there a sense of longing in my soul when I don't work? What is that? Work is something that God has given us the responsibility to do. And notice it was before Genesis chapter 3. Work is a good thing. Now, I talked to some guys who are dreading heaven because pictures of heaven that they see are floating around in clouds with wings and really doing nothing but singing. 
And guys go, man, I have no desire for that. I mean, what, what is appealing to that? Well, God's word is really clear that new heaven, new earth comes in the book of Revelation that there is going to be work. There is work to be done. Work is a good thing. We work because God worked. Now, again, um, let, let's go, and we're also to subdue the garden. Subdue the garden means we're to extend the reach of the garden. So not only are we to work that territory, but there is a sense of responsibility in that we are to expand that territory so that Eden expands as the worshipers within Eden continue to labor and work and extend that territory. But how are we to do this? What is to be the fruit of our labor, so to speak? Well, the product of our work as worship is this, beauty and goodness. Beauty and goodness. Where do I get this? The trees, it says that God planted the trees, and from it were trees that were pleasant to the sight. Now, when I read that, I go, okay, there are some great-looking trees out there that don't necessarily provide fruit that I could eat. Now, I love me an orange tree, love me an apple tree, love that because there's some nutritional value. However, not all trees are built that way. And I think with that, I just see that sometimes God just, he, he provides his creation for the sense of beauty. And how many times do you go to work that is for a reason that's beyond the paycheck. I talk to more people, it's like, oh, I gotta go to work today. Hate my job, but I gotta do it. Gotta pay the bills. And they go, well, yes, work is important for paying the bills. Um, but having a purpose for your work that extends beyond paying the bills, I think is what makes your work an act of worship to God. Would you agree with that? That how we approach it, how we go, so that wherever you are working, you bring beauty to that place, and you can bring goodness to the place. See, there's some other trees, too, that were good not only to sight, but also good for taste. It's like, oh, man, that tastes good. And what I love about God is that he created all kinds of varying tastes. I, I love to eat. How many of you guys love to eat? Good, man. But I, I really love to eat a variety of different kinds of foods. I'm always amazed by our staff at, at different kinds of places they go. And man, I, I just, well, I can't do that hot stuff that you love. But man, you love that. That brings life to your, your soul. That's so good. You know, God could have just made it so much simpler that we liked everything, and so that every tree was good to every single person, but that would be a little bit boring, wouldn't it? God in his creativity gave us taste buds to enjoy, but when I liken this to work, I, I just think, how many times do you wake up in the morning, you're about ready to go to your job, and you say, what is it that I can bring the goodness and beauty of Eden to the situation? I was telling some guys the other day, sometimes I really miss my job in the corporate world because I felt like I was at the forefront of, man, this is where ministry happens. 
that out in the corporate working world, that there's a whole bunch of people, they're just, they're stressing out, they're working long hours, they're trying to get the bigger paycheck, they're trying to get the promotions, but in the middle of that, God has placed us as worshipers in those places of work because that is not a part of the curse. The part of the curse we'll talk about next week is that work got a whole lot more difficult, and there's reasons why, and that's called sin. We'll talk about that next week. But in the meantime, the purpose of work, the purpose for your work is to be worshipers. And our world needs to see worshipers. Why? So they will look at your life and go, wow, your, your boss is a jerk to you, and yet you're not talking bad about them around the water cooler. What's up with that? You say, man, I just so choose not to go to that territory. Why? Because my goal here each and every day is to bring beauty and goodness to this environment where God has placed me. And I think we've got to keep looking at our places of employment or our places of recreation or our home life that we have got the awesome responsibility, the God-given responsibility to work because he works. But here's something that people can really struggle with, and that is the trees, the trees. Because it's almost like, okay, here we go. Now, in week one of this series, I said I encouraged us, read the scriptures as for the very first time. And I have been so encouraged that some of the questions that have been coming my way of those who've been walking in the faith for many years, but it's like, whoa, I, I've never really taken the time to wrestle with this. And it's like, praise God that you are. And one is, okay, God puts a couple different trees in the garden. Now, one is the tree of life, and it's like, hey, the man, that's a tree I want to be eaten from, the tree of life. That sounds really good. It sounds appetizing. And, and in the book of Revelation, it says those who eat of this tree will never die. I mean, this is sustaining life. This is continuing life. And in Genesis 3, we're going to see again next week is that the grace of God, when they ate from the wrong tree, the grace of God was, well, I'm going to guard so that you cannot eat the tree of life and be eternally in this wicked, evil state. And I love that about God. But here's the question people have. Why would God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the garden? Why would he do that? Now, some would say, now, wouldn't that be a temptation put there by God to sin? I want you to think about that. Because that is a wonderful question. That means you're engaging your brain in a really, really good way. See, God, I, I want you to think about, especially for those of you who are parents that have kids, if your kid was programmed to do every single thing you said... And at the pull of a string, say, I love you, mommy. I love you, daddy. Would you feel love from that um, child? No, they're, they're programmed. They're robotic. See, there is, a, there is something about why God created us. He, he created us, we are reminded of last week, to be imagers of God. When I think of an imager of God, I think of a statue, you know, uh, you go to, 
a city and you see statues of great people and they are to represent the person who is being honored. They're to represent that. I remember taking my kids, uh, Tammy and I, when we led mission trip to New Orleans, we lived in the South. Um, you know, there's these guys who make themselves look out to be statues. And you're just kind of like, you go close by. And uh, I remember kids just being scared to death when all of a sudden it's like they thought it was a statue, but it was alive. Now, in a very similar way as imagers, we are to image our creator in the place we live, in the place we work, in the places we play, that we are to image the greatness, the beauty, the goodness of our creator. But he had to put choice in the garden because in his creation of humanity, he did not create humanity because he was lonely. He created humanity as an overflow of his love and wanting creation to experience love. I mean, real incredible love. And as we're going to see more in detail next week, that the greatest way love is shown is when disappointment is directed to the lover and the lover, instead of retaliation, gives the best. That's why I just say the pinnacle of God's love is his grace. You see, that's why God would put choice in the garden. He puts choice in the garden. He has spoken creation into existence. He has now spoken to man. He's given man a warning. And this same authority that put creation into existence now tells the man something that I think is a great lesson for you parents. And that is don't just tell your kids why not to do something. Tell them why. What is going to happen should they do that? That is very helpful. Kids, you know, may not like it, but they could find it very helpful. Here God says this, do not eat. You could eat of all these trees. Look at all this great stuff. You could eat from all of this. However, there is just this one that, no, that's just my tree, not your tree. That's my tree. What is it in us that when it's just like, Oh, we could do all of this, but not just that one. What does scripture say that creator God said would happen to him? Look at the text. It says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, it's going to be about 900 more years before they die a physical death, but make no mistake, death happened that we're going to talk about next week. Death happened, the separation, the, the whole idea of now man has chosen to eat from a place that was only reserved for God, and now mankind would have to pay the consequences. But here's what is so exciting about all this, none of this got caught God off guard. None of it caught God off guard. God is a sovereign God. God is a good God. People will say, well, if he's sovereign and good, then why would he even make creation if he knew this was going to happen? It's because God 
is going to show in this history of man time and time again the radicalness of his love and that he is a God who can be trusted and that we are a people who are to image and represent this good God who could be trusted that no matter what the circumstances are we are going through, we are driven by this opportunity to be worshipers where we live, work, and play. And when we fail, and fail we will, because did you notice that at the end of God's created order, he said he saw everything and everything was very good. But you know what? Very good is not perfect. He just said it's very good. Very good. There is only one perfect one. And that is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God functioning as one, three distinct in persons, a mystery, but make no mistake, incredibly one and incredibly perfect and incredibly working out his plan to the end. And we find ourselves in the middle of it. And here's what we do that I, I really want to warn us not to, that between a microscope, we could be looking in a microscope, and I don't know if you've ever looked at a microscope, but in a microscope, everything is really small, and everything is really manageable, and you look under a microscope to make that stuff magnify so you could see the littlest of things, um, but I would encourage we as a church family, don't dare try to put God under a microscope. I would encourage you instead, look at him like you're looking in a telescope. Man, you're looking at the heavens. Man, there is just massive amounts. And, and you're looking and you're humbling yourself. And you're getting down on your knee and you're looking up to the glory and majesty of Almighty God. And as you're doing that, man, that makes you a worshiper. You don't make God manageable. You make him just like, oh, wow, you're big. Here, what am I going to inspect about you today? And I believe, church, man, we are living in a day where... Man, we've got to live distinct from the world. And here's the tragedy. I, uh, my dad got me a subscription to Decision Magazine, and I was reading in a Decision Magazine article. It was dated uh, in April of 2021. Uh, yeah, 2021. And it was a... a study being done by the Barna Group on worldviews and all of that, and what was uh, tragic about it is the results of that were that 88% of Americans would hold to a combination of a variety of worldviews. I mean, spanning from biblical theism to secular humanism to postmodernism to moralistic therapeutic deism to nihilism to Marxism to Eastern mysticism. And it says the average American just kind of picks and chooses and almost like puts together a Mr. Potato Head kind of thing and just says, here's the, idol, here's the, here's the God that I have formed in my hands that I can understand and again, that is just not a good thing. <laughs> the tragedy of this is it said only 6% of Americans have a biblical world view. 6%. 
when they pressed in. But it said in the study, originally, 51% of Americans said, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible. 51% of Americans said that. However, only 6% actually had a biblical worldview. That is the God of the Bible, the God who the, the revealed word reveals himself to be. And so church, here's, uh, here is what the summary statement of this article said. It says this, our studies show that Americans are neither deep nor sophisticated thinkers. Really, it's true. I'd say it's like, hey, you know, here's where we stop. We go, hey, Jesus died for me. He lo- God loves me. He died for me. I prayed a prayer. I get heaven. That's all they need to know. Man, that is so kindergarten elementary level. It's like, good. You got the alphabet down. Good. Here we go. Man, let's get to know this God. See, that's the beauty of Eden. It was creation, being able to interact with the creator. And then he says this, most people seem more interested in living a life of comfort and convenience than one of logical consistency and wisdom. Our children will continue to suffer the consequences of following in the unfortunate footsteps of their parents and elders. Isn't that a sad indictment? It says, people who are willing to fight for a more reasonable way of thinking and acting can make a difference, but it will be slow progress. But even though it's slow progress, we need to to ante up, and we need to be a people who know the word, a people who know how to make a defense for our faith to say, here is the granite that we are building our life on, that no matter the storm, no matter even the earthquake, that my faith can stand. Folks, this is why we, as a church family, are unwavering in our commitment to teach the Word of God and to prepare us and equip us for the times in which we are living. And what I love that we celebrate is the third tree, the cross of Jesus Christ, that when we fail, God has made a way for us to have relationship with him, going into that more deeply next week. But as we respond, I'm going to invite uh, Tammy out and do the uh, underscoring right now so you can be thinking of which tree do you find yourself eating from? I, th- I think that's a question we need to be thinking about. What do you find yourself eating from? Do you, are, are, you, are you finding yourself trying to function in the position of God, knowing good and evil, and judging that according to your perspective? Or are you eating from the tree of life? Are you connected to the living word? Are you connected to Jesus who says, eat from me and you will never go hungry again? But he says, eat from me, eat from me. He says, I am the living word. Man, take that, ingest it. And so I'm gonna give you a little bit of time to reflect on that, and then we will respond with song. Heavenly Father, We thank you for everything you have done in creation and all you do in recreation. We thank you for the trees in the garden that teach us truth, beauty, and goodness. 
We thank you for the tree of the cross that redeems us from the poor choices we make. We thank you for the tree that is yet to come, the tree of life that we will enjoy for all eternity. But grant by your grace that we might embrace these truths and be embraced by them. Grant that all of our lives would be defined by the pursuit of truth, beauty, and goodness. Grant that as a result of it, people will see your church and recognize that it is just not inward, but that we are outward in our physical manifestations of the truth that we have partaken of. That we would declare to the world that we are different, that we are imagers of you. And we pray this not for our glory, but for your glory, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen and amen.